this is what I worry about with organizations. They're saying, look, we get times are tough. We're going to give you some tools, but you got to go out and it's up to you to be resilient. And what I'm saying in this is that organizations need to get better at creating conditions where people don't have to be so resilient. We have to get better at helping people take care of each other. And organizations have to get better at creating a context in which managing challenges like adversity, tension, stress is part of what they're responsible for. We need to put the burden on the systems to create environments in which people don't have to be quite as resilient. And when they do have to be resilient, they're doing it with other people. My relationship to self-care is a complicated one for sure. And I suspect some of you may relate. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure I really understood self-care for most of my life as much as I understood how to accomplish a lot without caring well for myself. Like it was worthy of bragging rights to push through and accomplish a lot, no matter the cost to my body or well-being. I know (laughs) that feels a bit warped to admit, but growing up, the messages I received around caring for myself were that it was weak and it was strong and noble to push through whether in sports, work, or academics. And any battle wounds I received from going all out and pushing harder was worthy of celebration. Now, growing up and through my early career, many people around me implicitly and explicitly taught me needing any kind of care or support was looked down upon. And so naming struggles or asking for help was considered unprofessional or detrimental to any advancement. Now, of course, that's messed up. And this view of self-care that it's selfish and indulgent stayed with me for a while. Much of this messaging I received in my childhood and early career was well before the current culture of self-care and the self-care industry. And I see how self-care feels so radical when so many of us grew up overworking, over-functioning as the status quo. It was not until graduate school where I was exposed to the origins of self-care through the works of Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde, to, to name a few, who saw self-care and communal care inextricably linked and as an essential part of survival and sustaining their important work. My training as a psychotherapist began to shift my views around self-care to an extent as it began a long and committed journey of unlearning and reevaluating my relationship to what it means to care for myself and see it as both a strength individually and collectively, as opposed to something that it's looked down upon or that you're supposed to do on your own. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. I realize I'm not alone in my lifelong struggle with the concept of self-care for a multitude of reasons. And I think one of the biggest challenges and confusions about self-care comes from the fact that the term self-care seems to mean different things to different people. Is it bubble bath and facials? Is it a nice vacation or buying a coveted outfit or a pair of shoes? 
Or is it advocating for reasonable wages and safe working conditions? For some, self-care can feel like a justification to splurge or to just take a dang day off when justification sadly should not be needed. For others, I see how self-care is a means for survival and maintaining capacity to keep moving forward when things feel bleak. I know for me it has evolved from something I judged and saw as indulgent to something that is a part of my regular and still ever-evolving well-being practice. I see how spending my time and resources in the name of self-care also is not self-care for me and more about protection and disconnecting from discomfort. And I think this is just important to note in this conversation because back in 2021, I took a year off buying any new clothes and this teased out some habits that looked like caring for well for myself. But in reality, these choices, these purchases, they didn't offer restoration physically, emotionally, relationally, or spiritually. And reflecting even back to my time during grad school, now that was a time where I really started to rethink much of what I believed about self-care, how it was offered as a solution in the presence of really rigorous demands. We were encouraged in grad school to take care of ourselves as we cared for our clients. But this was a challenge and it felt like we were set up for failure given all of the demands we were carrying and how we were all constantly exhausted And those who were teaching and training us were just as exhausted and stretched. But the message was clear. The onus was on us to make sure we figured out how to meet all of the demands we were holding while keeping our energy and health and academic standards. No big deal, right? Most of us were extremely stretched trying to make ends meet, finish our school requirements for classes and our thesis, work a job to pay the bills while working for free during our traineeship which was required to graduate. It was a lot. Now, I remember well-intentioned pizza nights in between classes. I mean, hello, free food for the win, and group hikes that were planned to foster connection. But these gestures all fell flat when what I really needed was more financial support and relief from a credentialing system that felt tedious and onerous. And the self-care industry knew how to play to my exhaustion and burnout, inviting me into the never-ending loop of the pursuit of self-care as the industry markets to the pain that comes from exhaustion and constant striving. Now, the irony is not lost on me how a program training mental health professionals can be so taxing on our well-being and capacity for caring well. And I see how businesses and organizations fall into similar situations where they advocate for self-care, but leave the individual fending for themselves or furthering feelings of stress and isolation. Now, the idea of taking care of yourself now became a brave and bold thing to do. In fact, it became a personal responsibility to care for yourself. And if you can't, then the message shifted to a personal feeling that you were not caring well for yourself. Now, this individualistic lens fuels a multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry focused on self-care in a way that offers products and services with the hopes of making us look and feel better. 
But this lens misses the many, many systemic influences that can get in the way of caring for ourselves, let alone the important communal aspect of giving and receiving care, not just as an indulgence, but instead as a sustaining and holistic approach to self-care. Now, as a systems trained therapist, I started to resonate more with seeing self-care, not as something to be solved through consumption or a prescriptive plan, but instead as both an individual practice that is also deeply relational and connected to the communal. The more I connected the dots in my work over the years with my own journey, I see how I care for myself is connected to my sense of my own worthiness or struggles believing it, my boundaries and my relationship with work. And it's also inextricably connected to my community and being in spaces where there's reciprocity and how we care for each other. Which is why when I read an article by today's guest about how we need to stop framing wellness programs around self-care, I reached out and invited her to join me on the show. Dr. Barton is an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School with expertise in organizational and team resilience managing uncertainty, and interpersonal effectiveness during adversity. (laughs) Now check all this. Drawing from wildland firefighting, high-tech entrepreneurship, expedition racing, and military operations, her research considers how groups make sense of ambiguous situations, how they coordinate, learn, and share knowledge in the midst of confusion, and how they mitigate and recover from adversity. She's especially focused on the relational dynamics that enable these practices. And Dr. Barton's research has appeared in academic and practitioner journals like Harvard Business Review and MIT Sloan Management Review. And she has presented her work at venues such as NASA, the U.S. Army Medical Command, and so much more. Prior to her academic career, Dr. Barton spent 10 years with Harvard Business Publishing, where she co-founded of their e-learning business and the Global Product Director for Leadership and Management Development Programs. She has a BA from Pomona College and a PhD from the University of Michigan. Now, listen for Dr. Barton's insights on the importance of turning towards each other as a form of self-care in times of crisis and struggle. And pay attention to how Dr. Barton unpacks how organizations need to do a better job of creating conditions where people don't have to be so resilient. And notice when Dr. Barton addresses how leaders who grapple with emotions collectively allows people to process their emotions better. Now, please welcome Dr. Michelle Barton to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Dr. Barton, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. I have been waiting for this conversation to happen ever since I read your most recent article titled Stop Framing Wellness. So thank you for making the time for this conversation today. My pleasure. I'm I'm happy to be here. So I want to start off by just having you tell me what inspired your interest in studying self-care and employee wellness and the intersection of the two. I'm curious what tipped you off that there might be some unexpected side effects of the boom in what we see as self-care messaging right now. Yeah, well, I actually um, I came out of I came to this because I study resilience mm. in organizations. Um, 
And even before the pandemic, you know, we're seeing an organizational world that is increasingly uncertain and dynamic and complex. So I was studying questions around, you know, how do organizations absorb this uncertainty um, and, and strain and keep functioning? Um, and particularly, I was interested in what makes groups and teams resilient in the in the face of adversity. And my research kept coming back to the importance of connections between people. Um, groups are more resilient when the relationships between members are strong and durable. Um, and initially, I was interested in this from kind of an operational perspective, right? Today's work is very interdependent, so it makes sense that groups with good interpersonal relationships and a strong sense of connectedness are more effective at dealing with adversity, right? They're, they're better able to communicate, they can coordinate, they learn rapidly and all that good stuff that we need to do to respond to challenges. Um, but as I was digging into this, I began to realize that something deeper was at play. Um, it wasn't just that these teams were more coordinated. They also just didn't fall apart emotionally. Um, and that's when I started looking at well-being more generally, because we know that psychological health um, in general is, is grounded in attachment um, and in belonging. Um, we're social animals, right? So we do better when we feel connected, uh, connected to and accepted by other humans. And I, I think that the, that fundamental importance of connection has been sort of lost when we think about resilience these days, um, especially in the context of work. Um, and especially in, in our, I think the US popular culture where we tend to emphasize grit and, you know, and hardiness. Um, so I'm looking at all of this and then comes the pandemic and you know, suddenly organizations and their members are facing even more strain. Um, you know, individuals are coping with loss and grief and fear, but it's, they're also dealing with all this professional angst, right? They're, you know, how am I going to lead my team if we're, we have to do it online? Or, or, you know, how do I run a business if none of my suppliers are reliable anymore? And, and, and we don't even know how to plan for the future. How do I know what to invest in, in changing all this if I don't even know when this is all going to end or, or if it's going to keep going? So I think that organizations were were really alerted to just how much stress and anxiety was going on. And we see, uh, to be fair, I think a lot of organizations were already really thinking about this even before the pandemic, but the pandemic really brought it to the forefront. Um, and so we see this kind of rise of, of wellness program. And I just kept seeing um, mindfulness apps and, you know, um, encouragement to take time for myself and go for walks and, and people are talking about the importance of self-care, and it just began to worry me. Um, and, and to be clear, I should say, I'm not saying that self-care itself is bad. It's, it's, it is important um, that, we, that we do think about how we take care of ourselves. Um, you know, mindful meditation, right? There's a lot of research around um, just how incredibly beneficial that can be, both psychologically and physically. It's just that it's not enough. Mm. Um, because those things, they don't necessarily create connection. And, and I will say also, I think that when we, when we give the message of, of kind of focusing on self-care, 
in some ways, it's organizations saying, you know, look, when it comes to your mental health, you're on your own. Yep. Um, and I think that can lead to some really dangerously dysfunctional cycles. Yes. And I've seen that firsthand on way too many occasions with individuals and organizations. Okay. I have some follow-ups here. Uh, I want you to talk about, you talked about noticing groups, you said not falling apart emotionally. I'd like to to unpack that because I think that it might land differently on different folks. I know it doesn't mean that people aren't upset, maybe sad or mad. There might be tears, a little gnashing of teeth. Can you, from your perspective, when you say falling apart emotionally, it's not you're not remiss of emoting. What do you, can you go a little deeper on that? Yeah, yeah. it's like, actually it's kind of the opposite. So yeah, we're gonna feel those things. Um, everyone feels emotions, um, and when you're facing adversity, um, it you know it it brings out a lot of negative emotions. The difference is how we grapple with those mm. emotions, and um, I think that. You're right. I hadn't thought about the fact that by saying, you know, they don't fall apart emotionally, I don't mean they don't emote. Um, yes, we absolutely emote. They, uh, you see that all the time. It's how the team responds to those emotions. Do they fundamentally, it comes down to do they turn towards each other or turn away from each other in the face of those emotions? Um, and when we feel a lot of overwhelming and negative emotions, um, there's a tendency to defend against them, right? We we want to avoid them. We don't like feeling bad. So we find ways to try to sort of avoid those emotions. We can kind of shove them off on other people. We try to avoid them. We deny them. And those kind of defense mechanisms um, are really bad for teamwork, right? If you think about working with somebody who's really stressed and anxious, like it doesn't bring out the best in us <laughs> and it can break teams apart. Um, so that's what I mean by falling apart emotionally is the, 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 the responding by turning away from and splitting apart from each other. The group cohesion doesn't sustain if they turn away from the difficult, challenging, intense emotion. It, the folks that have cohesion are the ones that turn, they can, they have a higher capacity internally, but also collectively and you hold, they hold it together is how I hear that. Now you talked a little bit about a you gently push back on grit and hardiness. And, you know, and 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 I think, you know, Angela Dutworth and her work with around grit has has had some important pushbacks mm-hmm. to it. And 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 how some people maybe have used her work. Sometimes I I often see you gotta have more grit. It's almost like more pushing through. And and so yeah, tell me what you meant by like sometimes we focus too much on grit and hardiness. Yeah, can you just yeah, follow up on that? Yeah. So I think there are two issues with that. Um, one is, and, and I'm talking about kind of popular press views of grit. You know, when you when you when you see people sort of saying, you know, I got to be push myself through and and be tough and cowboy up and all those other <laughs> kind of phrases. So one of the issues I think with it is that resilience, which is what I study and I think is you know very much related to well being, um, is is not about survival, um, you know, that old saying about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I do not agree with that. Um, it's about struggling well. Yeah. And um, resilience is 
how you face adversity and the choices you make in the face of adversity. I, I tell my students all the time, resilience is not something we are. Resilience is something we do. Um, hmm. And, or it's not something we have, it's something we do. Um, and so the, my concern about how people think of grit is sometimes they feel like what that means is simply to, to put up with adversity, to, to just um, survive it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so unagentic. It, it doesn't involve any sort of choices on your own part. And I think there's a lot we can do to shape our experience with adversity. You can't necessarily change the outcomes. You can't, you know, change some of the fundamental bad things that have happened, but we can change how we respond to them. And that's what I worry about with sort of grit and hardiness, that it doesn't get at that very agentic piece. So that's one problem. The other problem, I think, is that um, it's this this idea of connection, that mm-hmm. I really, truly believe that um, human well-being is grounded in connection to other humans. And so there's something about grit and hardiness that somehow um, leaves out the need to do this with other people mm. and the need to be a part of something, um, you know, a, socially connected to others in some way. Um, so those are the reasons I kind of worry about that. Thank you for that. It's almost like it 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 uh, colludes with the rugged individualism mm-hmm. approach as opposed to we're in it together. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I pre- I really I really appreciate that. And then one other question on resilience I've been thinking about too and I've been you know listening to a lot of uh, dear colleagues talk about resilience, particularly those that are black and indigenous and and just other bodies of culture saying I'm tired of being resilient. Um <laughs> and and that my resilience has come at great cost. And and I think this is for everyone anyone who's been through a lot of difficult life experiences period. Um and that we celebrate resilience, but recognize there's a lot of, there's a great cost often behind that resilience. And I'm wondering, yeah, I wonder how you respond to that, given your focus and research. I think that, you know, and it's part of the reason I wrote this article with my with my colleagues is that in some ways, that's, people shouldn't have to be resilient, mm. right? Resilience is for when, when you're grappling with adversity because you have to, that's not an excuse to not fix the things that cause the problems to begin with, mm. right? We don't, you know, if if we're getting more and more and more hurricanes and we just want people to be resilient, that's stupid. We, at some point, we have to build hurricane-proof houses. We need to move differently. I mean, you don't just um, expect spe- people to, to, in some ways, that's that same argument, right? Well, you, it's it's a burden on you. And this is what I worry about with organizations. They're saying, Look, we get times are tough. We're going to give you some tools, but you got to go out and it's up to you to be resilient. And what I'm saying in this is that organizations need to get better at creating conditions where people don't have to be so resilient. Um, We have to get better at helping people take care of each other. And organizations have to get better at creating a context in which managing challenges like adversity, tension, stress, um, is is part of what they're responsible for. How do we create organizations where the culture allows us, for example, to talk about emotion so that we can actually process emotion together? How do we create organizations where people are um, respected and rewarded for creating connections between one another, where um, dysfunctional behavior and 
isolating and blaming and scapegoating is not okay. Mm-hmm. So part of this is, is that we need to put the burden on the systems to create environments in which people don't have to be quite as resilient. And when they do have to be resilient, they're doing it with other people. This leads up to my next question, but I, I want to note, though, too, that we're asking folks to do something that many have never been taught. In fact, they've been taught the antithesis of this, you know, just bear down, hunker down, deal with it, suck it up, chin up, bootstraps, all of that stuff. So oh, you got all of them. <laughs> I, well, I've lived it. I'm from Minnesota, first and foremost. I've lived, worked in D.C. and New York. So I've heard it. I've heard it all. And um, and and I ha- I'm continuing to unlearn it all. Um, so. So you touched on, you talked about feelings at work. What have you learned about why leaders avoid talking about feelings at work and what goes wrong when emotions are off limits at work? Well, um, I can answer that in two ways, but I think I might start with the with the second question. Right. Because I think it helps us answer the first. Um, let me give you a quick story. Uh, this came from a colleague of mine who, who told me this story, but... Um, it started with a horrible surgical error when a surgeon removed the wrong organ oh. from a patient. Oh. Right. My goodness. <laughs> so after this catastrophic error, the hospital administration insisted that the staff not talk about what happened, um, probably for PR reasons, you know, legal reasons, whatever. But the error really struck at the heart of the surgical unit's identity as a place where people come to be healed. Um, And so the members were overwhelmed with feelings of, you know, grief and anger and fear and shame. Um, And people began to engage in these defense mechanisms, right? Blaming and labeling. They treated the nurse manager as corrupt. Um, The offending surgeon was labeled as incompetent and the surgical nurse was seen as a victim because of her association with with the surgeon. And over time, the nurses and the surgeons came to see each other as enemies, right? Mm-hmm. To the, they became so angry and so separated that they literally could no longer coordinate work, right? To the point that this interpersonal dysfunction got so bad, the hospital actually had to cancel all elective surgeries, right? So, so what's going on here, right? Um, happily, the trigger for this event is, is very rare, right? Um, what happened afterwards, though, is so common. Um, and it's kind of what I alluded to before, right? Adversity creates psychological strain mm-hmm. um, and, and a variety of negative emotions. We get stressed and anxious. And um, and this does not bring out the best in us, right? We get defensive. Um, we try to move away from the, from the experience of those negative emotions, and, and that leads to defense mechanisms like blaming and labeling and all those things that we saw. And that creates fault lines in a group, right? Just as we saw in that surgical unit, kind of us versus them. And it, and it undermines communication, and it undermines coordination, and all of this starts to break down, which, of course, just leads to more problems, more adversity, which creates more bad feelings, and it just escalates in these vicious cycles. So this is what what sort of becoming overwhelmed with negative emotions can do to a group. Mm-hmm. But it, it kind of gets at the first question, too, is why do leaders not grapple with this? Um, so one answer, leaders don't address emotions, right? You think about in this particular instance, why didn't they, they grapple with it? Um, 
part of it is is organizational, cultural, right? We don't we don't talk about emotions here. We, it's normative. Um, we've come to see that as unprofessional. I think there's actually a, a deeper reason, though. Um, it goes a lot more. It goes a lot deeper than just sort of that's not how things are done around here. Um, and it's because leaders are people too, right? They feel the same anxiety and stress and anger. Um, they don't like those feelings any more than anyone else. And so they they also unconsciously, and I should be clear, this is not like a conscious decision, but unconsciously look for ways to kind of avoid grappling with those. And so one reason they don't talk about emotions is because it means they'd have to confront their own emotions. Um, and it's just much easier to feel like, well, no, that's just not professional. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so it, it can lead to these sort of dysfunctional cycles in part because it's it's hard to grapple with emotions. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about the story that you shared um, that you heard from your colleague and almost want to unpack it further because I. And maybe this is my my systems thinking or working in politics, too, that's like stirring up in the background. And I even looking at culture right now, too, there's <clears throat> that kind of situations playing out right now in many ways on a larger scale um, with the stakes immensely high right now. But if the doctor and the team and the surgery felt safe to admit their mistakes, but the culture of the hospital was like distancing who's to fault. This is what I make up. Okay, what's our insurance going to cover? What's mm-hmm. the publicity? <laughs> uh, how much are we going to get sued? Is the patient alive? Who do we get to talk to the patient and their family? How do we mitigate that? Who are we going to make the bad object instead of us? Instead of we are in it together, instead of the hospital, the doctor, the support staff in the surgery are all on the same team. And that's the team for the client who was harmed and saying we're in it together. But then at the larger, we live in a very litigious, shame-blame culture outside of that microcosm of the hospital. At the larger system is still, let's, who do we need to tear down? I cannot believe they took out the wrong organ. And could, I mean, you could, I mean, even me, I'm like, yeah. how do you do that? You're right. <laughs> and so, oh, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say there's so many so many ways to look at that from an operational perspective. Right. I see that all the time where people blame the sharp end of the stick instead of looking at what is the system that existed that allowed that mistake to happen, even, right? Instead yeah. of just blaming. Even before it even right. happened, how did it get there? Before it happened, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And, and that's a whole other set of work that I actually study as well. But wow. I, think, I think the key thing here, though, is that even outside of politics, so let's say you're a leader at this hospital and you have to think about what is our insurance? How do we deal with the PR? Like those are re- right issues. But there's a whole second level of dynamics going on here um, that has nothing to do with um, the the operational piece. I I guess pun intended. Um, that that has to do with what people are feeling. Um, because they were part, they were associated with this. Because they experienced this, um, and it may not even be people who were in the room. It can be people who were working with a family. It can be nurses who just identify as part of that unit, even though they weren't part of that particular surgery. They are going to be going through a lot of emotions, and when leaders just ignore those emotions, they can turn into just what we saw. We, it, it, the, the blaming and the, and the fear and all that wasn't just because 
this was a mistake and someone needs to be blamed because of our bigger culture. It was also because people are overwhelmed with the emotions and they don't know what to do with them. And so it's it's a deeply unconscious process as well as that sort of higher level political process. But there's an unconscious process here of you carry the blame, I'm going to carry the sadness, you carry the fear. There's a lot of kind of pushing emotions away to other people, anything to help me not feel this way um, and not grapple with what I'm feeling. It's so much easier to say, well, this is all about you, not me. You know, mm -hmm. this is your fault, not me, because then I don't have to grapple with my own anxiety about how I'm feeling and and my own identity and, and everything else that I'm struggling with. If leaders ignore that, it's going to keep happening. Like it's going to keep escalating. So I, I tell my students all the time, you know, ignoring emotions at work and, and particularly the when people are overwhelmed with emotions, it, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to ignore an accounting error, right? Like that's not going to change anything. <laughs> it's not going to go away just because you ignored it. Emotions are still going to have their effects on us. And so smart leaders look at this and say, we need to grapple with this. And it turns out the best way, or at least one of the best ways of grappling with negative emotions in a collective experience like this is to do it together. So it's it's a much, people are better able at processing their emotions if they do it with other people for a variety of reasons we can get into. But this is, in some ways, it's a really practical kind of strategic approach of saying, look, we can't just deal with the operational crisis. We have to deal with the emotional relational crisis too. Yeah, they're not separate. It's a part of the no. package. So, Absolutely. So when emotions are off living in any space and crisis happens, which inevitably it does, the default then is to turn on ourselves and then to try and protect ourselves. And as a result, it's me or you. It becomes very binary. And so we either, oh, it's all me and we crumble or we offload and blame and shame or all of the above. And then there's not, and there's not a solution. There's not a collective and there's more harm done. More harm is done in that process versus how are you doing? How, what do we need to do? What does help look like? Um, and it doesn't mean it's not hard and messy. And I think this is where I'm wondering what if the, the, the feedback I get when I talk to a lot of leaders, especially early on when I was getting into the coaching space and saying I wanted to talk about trauma and difficult life experiences, they all they all say, you can't say that word. You can't. And I'm like, why? They're like, it's too much to handle. Like, what's that's at our responsibility. And I'm like, if something happens to someone on your team and they're hurting, how is it? Well, that's for their therapist. And I'm like, okay, the, the, <laughs> then really what they, but when I kept probing, they're like, mm -hmm. I'm afraid of what I'm going to feel if exactly. I sit with what people yeah. on my team are feeling. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. um, that it's it's not just that, because we're not asking people to be each other's therapist, um, but we're asking for people to um, acknowledge the, the whole work experience. There we go. And to grapple with the whole work experience, not just the parts that are easy to talk about. Because <laughs> again, it's the reality. It's not like you're, you know, it's, it's not like people don't have these feelings at work. And it's not like these feelings don't create challenges at work. So 
ignoring that is just ignoring a significant piece of the reality of work. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. I know you don't mind making hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small and going it alone. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. One of the main principles in your article, and and I'm going to link this in the show notes, but I really encourage it's it's a it's a very quick read, but it's it's a nutrient dense read, (laughs) and I keep going back (laughs) to it and just rumbling with it. So I encourage you all to check it out. But one of your first principles for fostering workplace well being is to reframe adversity as a collective issue rather than an individual one, and you've already touched on that a little bit. Is there an experience that you can share, an example where this worked well? I mean, you shared one that where what, what goes wrong when we don't, but there's something you can share where this worked well? I mean, a couple of things come to mind. Um, I mean, one thing I was thinking about is you can also take a thought a thought example of, of that surgical team and think about what if they'd responded differently. Okay. Right. What if um, they had been allowed to talk and leaders could have started the ball rolling by acknowledging that what happened actually impacted them all. I mean, it's a really simple, easy step to say, you know what? Um, some of us were in the room, some of us were not, um, but we're we're all involved and connected in some way. And I recognize that this really impacts all of us. Um, and that starts to give the message we're in this together, right? So a leader could bring people together to talk about and share their experiences, what it felt like for them. And it begins to give this message that people are not alone in their pain. Um, you know, another example was we we um, we did some research with adventure racing teams. Definitely one of the more fun research projects oh, I've ever done. Fun. Um, and we were looking at resilience in, in these teams, and we we found that one of the main things that distinguished resilient teams from from sort of not resilient teams, or more like resilient behavior from not resilient behavior, um, was that in these resilient teams, 
no matter who was struggling, because oftentimes it was just one person who's having a bigger problem than the others. Um, so no matter who was struggling um, or even who had caused a problem, right? Um, they acted as if that pain and that suffering belonged to them all, right? So one person has altitude sickness and is slowing way down or, you know, someone makes a mistake and now they all have to backtrack three miles or someone's frustrated and angry and wants to quit. No matter what, the problem and its consequences belong to the team as a whole. And that attitude, that that framing of this is our pain or suffering, um, and I don't mean it in terms of accountability, not like, you know, we're all to blame. I don't mean that. But just the, the, the suffering that is being experienced in our team belongs to all of us. Um, that attitude triggered a really interesting kind of distinct behavioral response where people turned towards one another. We actually saw physically as well as sort of emotionally turning towards one another to support one another and build solutions together. So it's, it's not like it's a long process or something, this first step. It's just a sense of, um, you know, we are an interdependent unit. We can't just celebrate our successes and accomplishments as teams. We also have to acknowledge our struggle, um, our suffering as, as something else that's part of who we are. And that alone, that attitude alone, tends to start teams down a path of turning more towards each other than away from each other in the face of adversity. And that's when they can then start to grapple with those emotions. Hmm. Because there's an individual and collective safety, psychological safety to feel that distress, right? To, to go there and that it's not going to take you out. You're not going to be shamed or blamed. That vulnerability is is the, the the vulnerability is still there, but it's not at the point where it shuts people down. And I'm thinking of Kristen Neff's work and one of the components of her self-compassion theory is, you know, either, um, you know, the, the common humanity or isolation and that common humanity that what I'm feeling is felt by other people. And you build on that. It goes even deeper to what I'm feeling. We are in it together real time right now. Um, versus that isolation that happens when it's like, I'm the only one feeling this. And then it goes to a dark place. Um, and even you reference the turn towards, which is the Gottman's work in marriage couples therapy, right? They, the bids, you know, do we turn towards or turn away? And to bring that to organizations and teams, that's, I think it's really powerful. I'm even thinking of, you know, tough teams I've been on, whether it's a sports team or, you know, a, a political campaign in that time where we all had a part and we were working together, those were some of the most difficult, but also the most rewarding experiences of my life. And this collective, we did it together. We actually found in the adventure racing, and I think it was one of the more fascinating findings that when people, there were basically these two steps, right? That that if people viewed it as belonging to the team, then they turned towards one another and they engaged in collective coping. Wow. And and we saw collective coping happen in a lot of different ways. We saw a number of different practices for collective coping. So there were sort of um, kind of communal problem-solving approaches. There were some things about how people distributed strain among the group members. There was um, a practice of kind of how do we re collectively reframe what we're going through. But the cool thing was that the work of resilience, as I see it, the, the doing of the problem solving, the reframing, the redistributing strain, the coming together to do the work, not only 
dealt with the adversity in the moment, but it actually builds and fosters and, and bolsters those connections between people. So you're kind of creating a capacity mm-hmm. through the work itself so that next time, um, and we saw this in cycles, that next time they faced adversity, those connections between them are stronger because of the work that they did together. And because the connections are stronger, when they face another adversity, they're actually more likely to see it as belonging to all of them and start the whole cycle over again. So the stronger that we build these connections to one another, the more that we're building a capacity and a tendency to work collectively in the face of adversity. And it really builds on itself. It's a powerful contagion. Yeah. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's the the collective coping. I'm even thinking of this from a trauma perspective. When difficult life experiences happen, there is often the, the in the moment the freeze or something gets stuck in our nervous system. And what you're talking about, the actual action helps the difficult life experience metabolize and it's mm. getting witnessed externally and internally. And then the actual physical action of doing something collectively make sure that that acute stress situation doesn't turn into PTSD. Um, and so just thinking this through in a, in a more of the clinical level too, and, and how that, that action. And so that again, again, co- man, collective coping, that that's it. I mean, that, that is really ground zero. What do we, how do we cultivate cultures of collective coping without shaming that the shaming are we, we, we have to be able to, to say, I need, I'm hurting too. Yes, yes. And of course, you know, we we did see the opposite cycle too. Like when people try to engage in more individual coping, and I think this in some ways is what really triggered me mm. um, to to think about what I was seeing in, in a lot of organizations, because what I saw with the adventure racers was when they took a more individual coping approach, you know, sort of this is your problem, you're the one struggling, buck up, keep going, you know, whatever. Or often it was, you know, me like people did it to themselves right they you know this is this is my problem this is my issue i've got to f- focus here um we saw the exact opposite we saw separation and silence actually in fact one of the most common things we heard when describing those situations was the phrase and then it got quiet <laughs> right and so people physically got farther apart um emotionally got farther apart they communicated less they were more disconnected and then so what happens, right? Now they're having trouble coordinating and you're thinking one thing and I'm thinking another. And so we make a mistake, you know, and now we're in more adversity <laughs> um, or we're pushing people beyond, you know, I don't know that you're sick, so I'm pushing you to keep going and we're not talking. So you're getting worse and pretty soon you quit the race, you know, and now we're all falling apart. So you see these cycles of, of kind of individual coping leading to separation and silence that does not help fundamental coordination. It's not that it can't you know, that it always goes bad. Certainly, sometimes people are tough enough that they struggle through and they come back on their own, but it certainly doesn't build any connections in the team. It doesn't build that collective capacity to respond to adversity. Um, and that was that was a problem. I have no doubt in my mind when you just talked about how people respond to that feeling of isolation and disconnection. It's me I got to work on it on my own. It's my problem. I think some people listening to that have, that's part of their journey. And it's also what we've been taught, not just implicitly, but explicitly um, from our homes to the boardroom and everything in between. Um, 
And one quick thing people can do if they if they feel that, just FYI, is um, ask a few other people. Ooh. Because the fastest way to find out that you're not alone is to actually hear that other people are going through the same thing. I was just last week talking to a, a healthcare group and um, it was so interesting. Someone was talking about how they felt like they couldn't bring their authentic self to work. And then everyone in the room nodded their heads. And I was like, guys, do you, do you see what just happened here? Like you all feel that you can't bring, what are the chances that if you talk to everyone else at work, that the vast majority of people would also feel the same way? So, you know, we're sitting alone with feelings that, in fact, other people have. Um, and, and part of that is we just need to, we need to raise awareness of this. People need to be able to say, am I the only one who feels this way? And people are going to say, no, you're not. <laughs> right? There are lots of other people in it. Um, so part of our loneliness, I think, comes from an unwillingness or inability on the part of the organizational culture to be able to talk about things like this. Sometimes that's all it takes because you'll find out right away, you know, I'm not the only one suffering. I'm not alone. A collective exhale. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so to get, can, can, to drill down that a little bit more. So what would that look like in action if you and I were a part of an organization and you were some, and, and a real difficult thing happened and you were feeling that loneliness and that disconnection? How would you? check that? How would you, what were some just simple approaches to checking in with me or those around yeah, you? I mean, I think, I think making habits of checking in is a wonderful mm. process. You can, you can turn it into a routine. Um, back when I was getting my doctorate, we, um, at the University of Michigan, we had a, a, um, a practice. We had these um, brown bag, you know, lunches every week. And we started each one um, by sharing good news. And that was one way of at least bringing our authentic selves and sharing something. Um, and sometimes people talked about professional things. Oh, I got a paper published or I finished a first draft or whatever. But a lot of times people were talking about, you know, we just put a deposit down on a house or whatever. Um, and it was just part of our routine to check in with each other. In this case, we were trying to emphasize the positive and share good things. I was with another group um, at another university um, where a group of faculty members used to get together once a month. Um, you know, to help each other with writing and teaching and, you know, share just professional um, support and, and helping. But we started every meeting with literally just checking in personally. What's going on? What are you struggling with? How are things going this week, positive or negative? And we got in the habit of doing that. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a structured routine. We did it intentionally. We'd go around the room and people shared much more rich experiences. And some of them were small, you know, oh my gosh, I had this really bad class the other day. It didn't go anywhere near the way I thought it was going to. And now I'm feeling really kind of dumb and stupid. And can I really do this? You know, um, sometimes it was, you know, just little things. I've got a problem. I can't figure out how to do it. The cool thing was it, we got used to it. Um, and later I went through a, a more, a much more serious personal crisis at home. And I was able to share that with this group. And I was able to get support, both emotional and, and actually, you know, pr practical support. And I don't think I could have done that had we not built up that routine and that safety with little things mm -hmm. so that we could get to the point where we could actually talk about much more significant things. Um, so I think you could make it a part of, a, you know, kind of a, a routine. 
So the daily practice of checking in and little 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 bits of connection. Yeah. But uh, but I when the stakes are high though, and there is that moment that everyone's feeling, I, I've been. I've been in spaces where that silence happens when someone checks in and, and my system shut down. And I've also been the one that puts something out there and it's met with crickets and that's the worst. So what do we do when, if we just, how do we, you know, cause do we, do we continue to gently persist and say, am I really, is it really silent here? <laughs> is the silence really, am I the only one feeling this? Yeah. How do, mm-hmm. how do you, how do we respond? I think to- that depends on the, I think that depends on your culture because I, mm. I keep coming back to, I don't think these are things you do in the moment. And and this is why I I Got want it. to push back on organizations. I think you have to build these connections over time. And so you do it with the small stuff so that you can have the capacity to grapple with the big stuff. In that particular instance, you know, I think it would really depend on on the relationships you have. Um ideally you'd be able to say can other people share how they experienced this situation? Aww. You know, if it's something at work, like how did you feel about it? What were, what are you feeling right now? Um, but if you're in a group that does not have psychological safety yet, then you got to start by building that. Got it. Um, you know, if it's not the norm, um, it's a pretty it's a pretty rigid wall to push against. If you don't, kind you got to take it apart brick by brick. <laughs> So this leads to my next question. Thank you for bringing it back to the basics. It's not something you forge in a moment of crisis. You forge it in your daily culture, daily practices, daily habits, daily ways of connecting and leading. Um, So I appreciate that. So you also talked about a relational pause, which I loved, and the importance of taking a relational pause. What are the stakes if we keep pushing through difficult experiences and doing what I call, you know, business as usual? Yeah. Well, let me explain a relational pause first, um, because I think that's the, in some ways, the stakes are what we talked about with the surgical team and others, that, that, that teams become so overwhelmed by their emotions that they fall apart and can no longer do the work that they are tasked with doing. Um, that's what's at stake, our ability, our fundamental ability to do the work, um, as well as our health, our, our emotional health. Mm-hmm. Right? And those two things are tied together. But um, a relational pause is, is just a, a tool. It's a technique. Um, and it's a lot like other operational pauses. So, you know, groups will take like, um, you know, medical groups will do a safety huddle before they do a procedure just to kind of get everybody on board. And um, military groups will do a tactical pause. Again, you know, what are we facing? Kind of what do we expect? Um, so it's like that. It's a it's a kind of a timeout. Um the the difference here is that the purpose of a relational pause is to shift the group's focus from what members are doing um, to how they're feeling um, and and how they're interrelating as a result of those feelings and and the the goal of the relational pause explicitly is to face up to and manage anxiety and I when I say anxiety by the way I'm just kind of using that as an umbrella mm-hmm. term for all those negative emotions and stress and strain and anger and fear and all those kinds of things. Um, and you can do a relational pause as part of a sort of a normal routine. Um, as I said, you know, with this with this meeting, we used to do it at the beginning of every meeting. Um, but it also can be a way for m- members to kind of do an ad hoc timeout when they notice signs of distress. Um, so, you know, someone's sort of showing signs of anxiousness or someone's 
you know, you're in the meeting, that person just keeps rolling their eyes, you know, and the kind of the um, the body language that says, I really don't want to be here. Or I don't believe I'm frustrated. Um, but it's a way of saying, okay, time out. Something's going on here that we need to deal with um, and engage with rather than avoid. And whatever it is, it belongs to all of us. It's not just that person rolling their eyes or feeling stressed. That's just a signal that something's going on within our context. So we need to deal with this. And here's the critical part. You don't deal with it by immediately analyzing and problem solving, right? Which my MBAs love to do, right? We're all about analyzing and problem solving. <laughs> um, but really the, the first step or the second step, the first step is really time out. Um, it's to literally explicitly say time out, we need to shift our focus. Um, but the second step and the main part of a relational pause is, is really just storytelling. It's asking people to share what they're experiencing, you know, what's happening to them and critically how they're feeling. Um, so it's kind of like a personal storytelling and, um, and, and I want to be clear, this is, this is not, you know, some sort of deep psychotherapy. Um, it's just about having an authentic conversation about what each person is really experiencing. And while people are sharing their stories, while you're doing that, other members are actively listening and demonstrating compassion. Um, and what I mean by compassion is that we acknowledge the validity of what other people are feeling. Like maybe that's not how I responded. You know, I'm not frustrated, I'm pissed, I'm angry, right? Um, but those other feelings are valid. And it's really critical to acknowledge these kind of different experiences because when we ignore a sideline, you know, someone who's feeling differently or experiencing it differently, it, it, it creates those fault lines that, that we talked about earlier. It can, it can really undermine the group. So the cool thing is this process of sharing stories and of, of validating one another, of saying, yes, I hear what you're saying. I can see why you might have experienced that, or at least I understand that you experienced that. Um, it allows people, it does a bunch of things, but I think two of the more critical things is it it allows people to see each other in more authentic ways, right? So we're less likely to see each other with those simplistic labels that we talked about earlier, victim, you know, um, incompetent. We actually come to see each other in much more sort of shades of gray. Um, and of course, when you do that with other people, you know, you think about what that means for you. If, if I can start to see this person as a real human with, you know, pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses then maybe it's okay that I am too. So it kind of eats a little, it's eats away a little bit at that shame and that sense of, you know, maybe I am not enough. Um, because if this person is enough, maybe I'm enough too, right? It's, it goes both ways, uh -huh. that, that accepting of our authenticity. So that's one good thing that happens. It gives us a more, frankly, it's a more realistic view of what's going on. It's, it's really more real data than these kind of simplistic labels. But the other thing is, you know, when we talk about our emotions, it, it helps us kind of be released from the grip of those emotions. We, we shift to more prefrontal cortex and we, you know, we, we can um, feel less overwhelmed by them. We're also sharing those emotions. So we're kind of distributing the strain that we're feeling. Um, and so all of this, this, this sharing of stories and listening to one another with compassion leaves us in a place where we're now much more ready to actually have a discussion about 
what are the implications of all of this? And then once people are sort of less in the grip of these overwhelming emotions and they're seeing each other in more realistic ways, now we can move to kind of the third step of a relational pause, which is the analysis and problem solving. So, you know, let's think about how are we treating each other? Mm -hmm. Um, What assumptions are we making about each other? And how is that impacting the way that we're working? That's kind of the analysis piece. And then what should we do about it, right? How can we engage in more collective approaches to coping? How can we just practically, like, how do we communicate differently? How do we um, make different assumptions about each other? How do we share information? There could be, you know, quite practical things. Um, but it's really important not to jump to that stage because you, if, if you jump to that analysis and problem solving stage, which is, I think, what the temptation is, okay, time out. I see everybody's feeling bad. I acknowledge your bad emotions. Okay. Here's what's going on, right? <laughs> um, it doesn't give people a chance to actually come out from under the grip of those emotions, and it doesn't give people the chance to see each other in more realistic ways so that you're dealing with reality. So it's really important to go through that second step of, of the sharing and the, and the showing compassion so that you can get to the analysis and problem solving. You know, and you bring it back to even, even before the sharing, the storytelling, and the witnessing with compassion – there's the general foundation that this is a we thing, not just a, a them thing. Absolutely. And that is the premise that is still, I'm still working on unlearning because it feels so much more efficient to go, they just need to deal with their ish and maybe they just need to go leave. And that's what I feel about, you know, and some of those things that aren't very nice, but maybe more honest and versus okay, if they're struggling, what is it about our culture here? What What is going on? Immediately going into, huh, what's the data point about this? And and what's my and what do I do with my irritation or my defensiveness or my overwhelm or wanting to fix it? Whatever that may be, um, it, it, there's a lot of inner work. It's like an inner outer work. But if that premise is, is okay, one of, one of ours is struggling. So let's get curious. If that's the baseline, that's, that shifts so much. That shifts so much in any team or any organization. Wow. Yeah. And we're so willing to do it in other ways. Like I think that oftentimes teams are better at at thinking us when it comes to operational stuff. Mm. I mean, of course, there's plenty of dysfunctional teams that don't even do that, but <laughs> but really effective teams, you know, are they can talk about, look, we're all in this together. We are interdependent. We are working together. So we need to grapple with whatever's going wrong. And rather than sort of lay it all on one person, we're looking at the system. In some ways, it's kind of the smaller version of what I said earlier about, you know, when there's a medical error, instead of looking at that person as the sharp end of the stick, you're looking at what's behind that sharp end. Why was this person in a position to make a mistake? So if somebody's rolling their eyes in a meeting and they're being really irritating, yes, that's frustrating and irritating. And you're not irritated about what's going on. You're just irritated at them, Uh right? But you can also look at that as a signal uh-huh. that something's going on here. There's some conflict around what is our goal. There's some disagreement around our process. Like they're not just rolling their eyes for the heck of it, right? There's there's something going on, and it's and it has an impact on the team. Um, it matters to the team, and so. If we own it together, instead of making that person own it, we're much more likely to be able to solve it, but we're also much more likely to be able to kind of help everyone 
grapple with the emotions they're feeling. Because, of course, if one person's rolling their eyes, there's probably someone else who's either irritated at them for rolling their eyes or maybe rolling their own mm-hmm. eyes silently, right? Well, <laughs> so there's other emotions going on. I'm good at both <laughs> silent <laughs> eye rolls and real eye rolls. <laughs> right. Uh, but I guess I'm kind of wondering too, like, people hear this and go, this is awesome. I'm at a space or in an organization or community that doesn't support this. So what do I do? What do I do? What's my part? I think you start small and you role model. Mm. Um, so I I wouldn't take on, you know, the big elephant in the room when a, when a group's not ready for that. Um, but you take those opportunities in a meeting to say, oh, you know, uh, Ron, you look like you're a little frustrated here. Wait, can we, before we go on, can we just hear Ron's perspective for a second? Um, what's, what's frustrating you? Um, you know, in small ways, so that you start to teach the people around you and you don't have to be the leader. It helps if you're the leader. You have more power if you have the leader and certainly more responsibility for doing this if you're the leader. But you can start role modeling. Hey, I'm going to talk a little bit about my emotion, maybe in small ways, you know, um, maybe in positive ways. Guys, I have to tell you, I am really excited about this. Like, yes, I'm glad we did this, but I'm just like, I haven't felt this good at work in weeks. This is a great feeling. Like, why not talk about some of the good ones too, <laughs> right? Um, like training people to to be okay with talking about how they're feeling in small ways. You can also um, support other people who do bring it up. So if somebody says, I'm really frustrated and somebody else says kind of, well, get over it. You can say, look, I, I get it. And I know so-and-so is really tough, but we don't want this to turn into something bigger. Maybe we should just kind of dig into this a little bit. You know, so just little things to start to role model mm-hmm. um, that, it, that it is acceptable. Supporting psychological safety. You know, when somebody brings up something that's not popular, um, help them feel safe doing that. Just acknowledge, witness, invitation, even if it's not necessarily welcome, even by leadership, just tr- to, to try and in your own way, uh, model that. Yeah, it's great feedback. I really appreciate that. So I'm curious for you, after studying all of this for so much of your career, how how do you view successful well-being practices in your own work and life? And what does well-being look like for you today? How is that maybe different than you were taught? Yeah, it's such a big question. Um, yes. I mean, in terms of my own work and organizations, I'm actually fortunate. I work for an organization that I feel like does a really good job of helping people connect. Um, you know, it's interesting. I joined Johns Hopkins um, and Cary Business School two years ago, um, just when we were all going to go home for two weeks, you know, and then we we're going to come back, like, because the panic pandemic was just going to last two weeks, right? <laughs> Um, and so my first essentially year and a half was on Zoom. And I thought they did a remarkable job of building connections. We had a lot of thoughtful approaches to not just having one person talk at us on Zoom, lots of um, working together, doing something, you know, breakout mm-hmm. groups to discuss something. I find that people engage with one another um, best when they're actually creating something generative, when they're when they're building something. I mean that in the broadest sense, you know, ideas, products, solutions, papers. Um, we we build connections through the work of working with one another, right? And so anything you can do to create opportunities for people to connect, 
Um, and even better is when they can connect in very authentic ways. So um, I think another thing that's really helpful, and, and I've kind of touched on this already, is this idea of bringing bring a little bit more of yourself to your interactions with other people, um, whether it's a routine like checking in in a meeting, having some actual formal, hey, let's go around the room and check in, what are people feeling, um, and role modeling that. Um, it's also just acknowledging people's humanity. So when we start a meeting, um, you know, talk about, whinge about your day a little bit, um, joke about the challenges of parenting, um, you know, talk about the stress of having home maintenance while you're trying to be on Zoom. Like bring a little bit of your private life um, to your interactions with other people. It doesn't have to be deeply personal, just little things to remind each other we are human, right? We have this this richness to our lives. And I think the more we share that with one another, the more connections we make. And as I say, you can do that formally or kind of informally. Is that what you did, especially with starting this new job when all of a sudden you're in shelter in? And I, I feel like I made more connections in the first year and a half than I had in years. I mean, it was really a remarkable experience, um, oh. but in part because people made an effort. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think, and there, and there is a culture. Um, I'm fortunate to be in an organization where there is a culture um, where people are okay with you having that kind of banter and that um, talking, bringing other parts of your lives. We all were, you know, lots of parents at different age levels and things like that. And people can share across that. Um, yeah. I, I, you also asked, is this different from what I was taught? And yeah, um, I, I was thinking about that. Um, and I was really thinking, I don't, I don't really remember th- being taught per se. Um the, the only thing that I, I, I had kind of an aha moment because my mother used to tell me when I was a child that her mother used to tell her that if you're sad or anxious, you should do something nice for someone else. And that was sort of her little thing that she'd say to us when we were little kids and we were upset. If you're sad, do something nice for someone else and it'll help you feel better. Um, and I was thinking about that and I realized, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think the way she meant it or my grandmother meant it was from a space of, of generosity, from, you know, it gets you out of your own head, thinking about someone else allows you to sort of feel less focused on yourself. But I, I realized, you know what else it does is it creates a connection, right? When we do something for someone else, we're, we're making a connection. We're kind of reminding ourselves that we're part of a greater humanity, um, and that feels really good. <laughs> so I'm going, you know, that was a good thing to be taught. I think that was actually pretty decent advice. <laughs> Be generous, be generous, not, not, and not the over-functioning, earning your work generosity, but just, yeah. It was do something for someone else. And I think that do is important because this gets back to my feeling that agency is important. We have to be actively involved in interacting with other people to create those connections. Mm -hmm. So it's just do something nice. It doesn't, you have to be hugely generous, just do something. And those kind of actions actually are very healing to whatever we're holding that's difficult from our story and helps us have more capacity, as you so wisely shared and and research and write about. So this is, we could talk forever. I really appreciate the time. I'm wondering, I wanna, I've got some quick fire questions for sure. you. Are you ready? Okay. Sure. So Dr. Barton, what are you reading right now? <laughs> um, okay. So... Uh, my son's doing a semester abroad in Greece, so I pulled out my old Mary Renault novels, um, and I've been rereading *The Last of the Wine*, which is about an actor in ancient Greece. Really great novels. Oh wow! Okay, what what song are you playing on repeat right now? 
I don't really repeat it, but uh, Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. I play it to rev up for class. Yes, that's a good one. That's a really good one. It's a good workout song too. Best TV show or movie you've seen recently? Yeah, I struggled with this one. Um, I really like the remake of Tony Hillerman's novels with the TV series Dark Winds, but I have to say I've only seen one episode so far, <laughs> but it's okay. been really good. You're at the beginning of it. Um, <laughs> I'm a big 80s person, so I ask everyone this. Some people can answer, some people are like, what is that? But any favorite 80s yeah, movie or piece easy. of... Okay, okay. <laughs> Princess Bride, hands ah, down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, good one. Um, what is your mantra right now? I don't have a mantra. I thought mm. about that. I do not have a mantra. Um, yeah, I tend to give myself advice that's ad hoc. <laughs> <laughs> ad hoc. They're free, you freestyle. You yeah, freestyle in freestyle. it. I like that better. What is an unpopular opinion that you hold? Uh, we need to talk more about emotions at work. <laughs> Co-sign that. You're fist bumping the air right now. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? I have so many good role models. Um, and I tell my students, you need more than one. Um, I, mm. I, you know, especially my family. Um, my parents, my husband, my children. Um, I know that sounds really generic, but they are each really remarkable individuals. Um, I, I really do. I, I look up to every one of them. Uh, I feel that. I feel that too. <laughs> Dr. Barton, thank you so much for taking the time from your very full schedule for this conversation. Thank you for how you show up in the world with your work and your research and your teaching. Just really grateful for this time and a chance to learn more from you. And I know so many will get so much out of this conversation. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for doing this. It's been my pleasure. Audrey Lord is famously known for this quote about self-care in her 1988 essay collection, A Burst of Light. And she said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Her words wisely push back on the messaging I received as a kid and early in my career about caring for myself. Now today, I believe caring for ourselves needs to be more than just getting by. Sustaining self-care involves believing we are worthy of care, deep connection, safe community, and creating spaces that can support this kind of care individually and collectively. Dr. Barton shared her research findings with us, noting the more we connect and work through struggle together, the healthier we will be individually and collectively. She encourages us to take collective pauses when hard things happen and to work through challenges together instead of expecting people to just do self-care individually. Where does your definition of self-care need an update after listening to this conversation? What beliefs about self-care are holding you back from receiving the care you need right now? And how can you better support collective care and processing difficult emotions that are felt in the spaces you lead? It is imperative we create spaces that allow people to let down their guard, be seen, and not always have to be on and so resilient. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If this episode was particularly profound and meaningful to you, I'd be honored if you left a review and a rating and shared it with someone you thought might benefit from it. You can also find this episode, show notes, 
free Unburdened Leader resources and ways to sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email and ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 